Welcome everyone to the Interoperability Roundtable. This is an open forum fostering conversations around interoperability. My name is Jake Tunney, Product Manager at Leap Orbit, and I'll be your MC today. And I'm happy to note that you can now find Interoperability Roundtable on Spotify as a podcast. So we're joined today by hosts David Finney and Renal Basker, co-founders of Leap. Leap Orbit is the trusted innovation partner to many of the biggest market-leading health data networks, including CRISP, Manifest Medics, and Sync Health, as well as the policymakers who oversee them. We are currently working on improving accuracy and accessibility of provider data with our product, Convergent, a provider directory API as a service. Convergent also assists health plans to comply with the CMS interoperability rule. Today, we are joined by Genevieve Morris, Senior Director of Clinical Interoperability Strategy at Change Healthcare. Genevieve is a health IT policy wonk who leads Change Healthcare's clinical interoperability strategy development for the clinical networks team. Prior to joining Change Healthcare, Genevieve worked as an independent contractor for a number of health IT companies, helping them understand the health IT regulatory landscape and build product roadmaps to meet the needs of individuals across the healthcare ecosystem. Genevieve also served as the Principal Deputy National Coordinator, supporting the development of the Information Blocking Regulation. She developed the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, aka TEFCA policy. And Genevieve also served as the Chief Health Information Officer for the VA's Office of EHR Modernization. And before we jump into our topics, as always, we encourage um, we encourage uh, buy-in and questions from the audience. So please comment your questions in the chat. So uh, I'll briefly go through our list of topics today. And after that, Genevieve, I'll leave it up to you where you'd like to start. So just a reminder of our topics today, we're going to be covering information blocking, ethical, not just legal uses of data. How do you stand out in the noise as a patient-centric app? And finally, expectations around the ONC and its 2021-2022 strategy. So, Genevieve, if you want to take one of those and, and run with it, let's get started. Sure. Uh, and I'll apologize in advance if my cat decides to make an appearance. Uh, you can't really cage them in in a small apartment. Um, so I, I would say thanks for having me. First of all, happy to be here. And for folks who don't know, David and Renal and I are old colleagues back at the Audacious Inquiry days. So it's nice to be here with old friends who hopefully will lead me not to say stupid things. So, <laughs> so just give a signal if I'm going that way. Um, but I would say let's start with information blocking since we're just coming up on one month into the um, the enforcement, well, not even the enforcement period, but sort of the start date of info blocking. I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of Twitter <laughs> feeds about what's going on. I think there's a lot of speculation about, you know, how quickly anything will impact. Um, and, and, you know, just a lot of conversations, certainly within change healthcare and within our clinical group, there's, there's a lot of conversation about info blocking as well. Um, I think uh, for us, well, one, I've seen a lot of the speculation about will it or won't it <laughs> do anything. Um, and as a, as a policy person, you know, you work really hard to develop regulations and policies and you, you hope that you think of everything um, and you then sort of like release it into the wild and you, you see what happens and you find out pretty quickly like some things were great ideas and some things maybe not great ideas and, and people always figure out ways around things. And I think particularly with info blocking, it's such a, it's such a new concept to the industry and there's, there's so many kind of gotchas around it um, that I, I think are going to be really hard for folks um, that at least, you know, we're seeing a lot of fear <laughs> from folks around like, what, what does it mean? And then, you know, I tend to see, and I don't know, if you guys are seeing the same thing, like you have like two sides of the scale, you have the one side who are like terrified of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Do I just, do I really have to give data to everyone who asks for it? And then I see the flip side of like, Psh, who cares? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change the dynamic at all. Like we just are where we are. 
Um, and we're, we're kind of hearing both sides of that as we go out and talk and do our provider recruitment into our interop platform. We, we tend to see both sides of that. And I don't know if that's true for you guys too, but. Yeah. Hey, Genevieve. I mean, first of all, it's awesome to have you join us. Um, I, I was looking back and I think we were first colleagues in, in 2011. So yeah. time for oh, 10 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Since, since then, um, you've been our advisor. We've been your advisor. Um, we've worked together in a lot of different ways. So it's, um, i would call you, I guess, a friend before I call you a colleague or a client or a consultant. Yeah. Um, I mean, so on, on information blocking, I mean, it strikes me that, that, that it's going to be slow out of the gates for us to understand what, what this means. Um, I mean, it's kind of like any policy. There's sort of the, the letter of the law and then the, and then the case law, right? Like you don't really know what, what the contours of, of the, the boundaries are until um, the enforcement actions start to accumulate. Um, and I think the market can start to read the, the signals that are being sent by, by those actions. Um, yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feels a lot like, you know, 10 years ago, <laughs> I can't believe it's been that long. You know, I supported meaningful use in the field and worked with provider organizations to help them meet the measures. And, you know, we meaningful use had just launched and none of the audits had been done yet. And, you know, as soon as those first audits started to hit, it was suddenly like, oh, I should have been taking screenshots during the reporting period to demonstrate that I had a functionality turned on. Like, who knew? Because that wasn't part of the regulation or the guidance or anything like that. And I think, you know, ONC has been working hard to put out facts, which highly appreciative of that. But they can only put out facts that sort of reiterate what's in the regulation until we actually have some investigations into info blocking complaints. And I think, you know, I, I've just seen, I've seen a wide variety of knowledge. You know, I'll, I'll give an example unnamed because I actually don't even know who it is. But, you know, we, as part of our interoperability platform and the services we provide, recruit provider organizations to share data for particularly payment and operations purposes with payers who need it for, you know, the variety of stuff they need clinical data for. Um, and, you know, our provider recruitment lead went and talked to a, a hospital and said, we would, we'd like to connect to your EHR system so we can access this data. We'll record the audit logs, you know, all of that stuff. And they flat out said to him, we don't give access to our EHR data to payers. Like, why would we ever do that was sort of the, the response. And my response was, but like info blocking, <laughs> like you can't, you can't really say no to that. So I think it's, I think it's a matter of figuring out like the nuances of, you know, when can you really say no, you know, like validly and when can you not say no? And I think on our side, we're building out a lot of documentation for our folks who are accessing data to help them sort of understand, you know, you can't just go to a provider and demand data because you want it, right? Like you have to have an actual legal ballot purpose for that day. Like we as Change Healthcare can't just go and say, we'd like your clinical data, please. Um, and info blocking, if you don't, we have to have valid requesters on the other side. And so walking our team through sort of all those nuances of like, it's a valid legal requester. Okay, step one. Now, step two is like, how would we like to access that data um, that really is the US CDI right now, US core data for interoperability? Um, how would we like to access it? And like, what are our first order options for that? And then what are the secondary options if the first isn't available? And I think there's just, I think there's a lot of confusion about that in the market. Um, and we're, we're still seeing at least a lot of the anti-competitive issues, particularly when you move outside of treatment. Like it, it feels to me at least like everyone has sort of said, treatment and individual access, fantastic. We agree. We're not going to compete here. Access is available. We'll do what we have to do. But you get into that payment and operations use case <laughs> where the data is just so valuable, just at its core. And we're still just seeing that same competitive nature of we're going to make it really hard for you to get to the data because we over here have our preferred payer network that we would like people to join and charge an awful lot of money for. So I think it's, I think it's just going to take, it's going to take time. Nothing with policy is ever fast. Well, ever. and I think, I mean, if you think about what information blocking is intended to do, it's intended to 
change the power dynamic in the industry. <clears throat> and I think, you know, that there, there's still a lot of entrenched power in the organizations that hold much of the data. Um, and so I think that's another reason why sort of the, the initial round of enforcement action is going to be so important. Um, you know, if, if change healthcare goes to a, a health system and says, we, we would like access to this kind of data for this purpose, and we don't b believe under the law that you can now say no, um, that's a certain type of conversation, right? Because change could choose to sort of marshal all of the resources that it has to um, make that case. Yeah. Um, but, but for a smaller company like, you know, like LeapOrbit and there's some other, I see some names that are um, representatives of other kind of small companies like us on the, on the attendee list. Um, you know, if, if we go to a big, you know, Johns Hopkins healthcare down the street here, or we go to Epic or, or we go to APRIS or sort of one of these sort of monolithic data silos and say, hey, we, you know, we, we want access to your data. Um, it, it's a lot easier to, given the, the power dynamic in, in each of those markets to say, to say no or to ignore us or to put it off and create roadblocks, right? You would think I have found it's pretty easy for them to do that to us too. <laughs> Just okay. by being changed. I think the beauty of info blocking though is that, and, and this is kind of a nice thing, is that once you submit the complaint to ONC and OIG and you submit all of your sort of documentation, right? And let, let's be clear about this. And part of what I'm creating for our team right now is that documentation trail of Here's, here's who we made the request on behalf of. Here's when we made the request. Here's who we made the request to. Um, here's exactly what we asked for. And then here were their responses, right? Like, and I do think you need to make sure, especially if you're a company who's going to try and leverage the info blocking, which we all should be thinking about, um, that you're documenting those kinds of things because that's all going to go into the investigation. Sure. But the nice thing is, is once you've documented all of that and you submit that complaint into ONC, like you don't do anything at that point, right? ONC and OIG go into investigative mode and they might like, if you don't submit anonymously, they might bring you back into the loop and ask you for additional information. They may ask you to go back and try to work things out, you know, with whomever, like if you didn't really follow all of the steps that they give allowance for. But it's really key, I think, particularly for smaller companies and even for change, like to work through a process of, okay, so we have all these various EHR vendors and we all have our preferred ways of connecting. And under content and manner exception, we can ask for data any way we want it in any type of connection, but they don't have to give it to us that way. Cause, and there's technical reasons why they might be able to say no. There's contractual reasons why they might be able to say no. And then what do your options become, right? And so for a company to like document out, like how am I gonna make these requests? And like, what am I gonna ask for? and then document all of sort of the paper trail of it, I think that's how you start to make info blocking work for you when you're a data requester. If you sort of just go like willy-nilly and you just drop and threaten and you're like, info blocking, you must give it to me. Like that's just not really gonna function because info blocking has guidelines to it, right? Like you have to make a very specific request on behalf of a legal requester you can't just go and generally like have a conversation. You know what I mean? Like you can't have like a preparatory call with any EHR vendor or provider group and they're just, and but not really tell them exactly what you want. And then when they don't respond, be like, well, I'm gonna complain about you now. Sure. That will never get investigated. <laughs> well, like and I, I think, um, and Renal, you, you probably can speak to this a little bit. Um, <clears throat> to be even handed that there's, a, there's a, another set of complications on, on the other side of, of these discussions, right? Like, I mean, if we just take EHR vendors, um, and I can kind of you know rank a bunch of them in, in my head, um, some of them are are equipped to have these conversations, and some of them, qu quite honestly, just are, are not. Um, They're small. And so yeah. e even some that are not that small are just not not equipped to um, meet the market where you know those of us who want to do in innovative things with the data um, want to take it. Right, yeah. and and they're they're going about getting there in different ways and at, and at different speeds. Yeah, and I'm like even navigating. I was just working on this this week, like trying to find the various app stores 
for even just the large vendors and the different ways that they've done it. I mean, you go from Epic App Orchard, which is highly structured and not really self-service over to Cerner, who's like full self-service, right? And then you go to Athena, which is sort of in the middle ground. And then ECW, I can't even find in Hilo their app store at all. So so it's this wide variation. And the, the tip I would give to folks um, if you are not familiar with the ONC Chapel site, CHPL, the Certified Health Product List, um, that Chapel site is where all certified products live, along with the criteria they're certified for. If you're struggling to figure out like how to get to an EHR vendor's APIs because they don't have an app store or they just obfuscate it, which you know a bunch of them do, right? <laughs> Let's just be honest. Um, or they, to your point, David, like they just don't have the resources to have it. Um, if you go to the chapel and find the EHR vendor and their products, and then you go into the criteria for the APIs, you can find hyperlinks to their fire documentation, right? And in some cases, that will lead you to how you get the access point, right? Because just having the documentation we know isn't enough. But most of the time, that at least like routes you to the right place to get the information on how you actually connect to it. And I think a lot of people, like, I, I always have to give credit to ONC, like, you know, they have a ton of resources on their website, many of which I built prior to serving when I was their consultant, that people just don't really realize they have and, and the people there work really hard to keep up to date. Um, and that's a, the chapel site is a really good resource for that kind of information. Even if you're just trying to figure out, okay, which version of fire do I have to deal with? Because V4, I mean, we're still, what, a year and a half out from that being certified. So like really like two years out from availability. Um, but it's just, it's just tricky. Like, I think people are going to navigate it different ways. And, and I would say if you're a data seeker, like figure out a really standardized process for how you're going to ask for the data, um, and try to be reasonable <laughs> with people, um, and not just like go file a million complaints with ONC because they won't like that either, because <laughs> then they have to weed through a ton of things that aren't helpful. So. Sure. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's great information, Genevieve. Um, I, I'm beginning to sort of think about um, the infrastructure that might be needed, you know, and, and of course the EHR vendors are um, in different degrees, they're making investments to sort of build that infrastructure to allow for those things to, to happen quickly and, you know, being able to connect and interoperate and all of that. And, and that there's, there's a lot of work going on and I'm, I'm really pleasantly surprised um, that you know, we have EHRs with app stores now and you can get in there and there's a process and there's cost to it, which is, um, you know, okay. always there, right? But um, at the same time, like we couldn't have done that like four years ago, three years ago and, and things are moving uh, forward every, every week almost. Um, and uh, a lot of things are standards-based, so it's easier to for you to go build an app and say, you know what, uh, for the most part, uh, it can interoperate with different EHR systems. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm beginning to sort of think about all the, you know, sort of directionally as, as ONC and other sort of policymakers are looking at individual access, patient access to, to data and allowing innovators to really get access um, and, and really give the data in the hands of, of uh, patients. And one of the questions we always get asked, like, you know, um, how many patients do you see so engaged that they would actually be, want to be in the middle of all of this? And yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not, not too many. Uh, yeah. But you can say the same thing about financial data, right? A lot yes. of people are not uh, involved in the day-to-day -day transaction. Um, but the data fluidity is there, right? I mean, you can, you can move money and you can move data across across different things and it has empowered use cases um, that are beneficial to the entire ecosystem, um, yeah. including the individual. And so what's, what's your take on that and, and just sort of high level, um, where do you see it going? Yeah, I, I have so many thoughts about this topic. I actually did a paper years ago for ONC, probably like 2014 maybe, um, on the behavioral economics of patient engagement with their health data. Because if you if you don't know my background, political science is my master's. So I'm just like a full-blown 
prepared. Um, I, think I, remember, and, uh, I think I remember copy editing that report. Yes, I think you probably did. <laughs> you know, one of the, the things that we have to understand on patient access is like, you don't need your health data until you suddenly need your health data for something, right? So really good example. I just moved to Georgia from Maryland where I had established doctors and I, I am dealing with a particular health issue and had just started seeing a physician in Maryland just started treatment and the treatment's not working and immediately went back to the doctor who can no longer see me even via telehealth because I live in Georgia. Not surprising. That's like how it goes. But like now I have to find like a new doctor that's a specialist down here and like transfer all my medical data over it. Like, so I, like I am an engaged patient who actually accesses my health data. I'm also a caretaker of parents. Right. And so I think there are times where you definitely need data access, but the majority of the time you don't, right? And I think the financial is a great example of like, very rarely do you need to do a transfer of large funds to a title company. But when you're buying a new house, you're really happy that that service exists because it makes it super easy for you to do everything electronically, right? I think it's the same thing with individual access. And I also think people have been really short-sighted on pure just access to data that I have in front of me versus the services you can spin up about that data, right? So if you think about the, the payer APIs that they have to stand up for patient access, um, you know, I'll be the first person to say, and I say this because I have parents who are on Medicare, my parents are never going to download an app and look at their Medicare Advantage claims data. Like it's, it is just not gonna happen for them. Like, why would they do that? It's not helpful despite that they have conditions to manage. What they would find incredibly helpful is a service that can access that data on their behalf, do analysis of the claims that they've had over the last few years, and then recommend new Medicare Advantage plans for them as they come up to the open season that are financially better for them, but also still have really high quality ratings, right? Like we, I feel like on the individual access, we're being incredibly short-sighted and yes, basic individual access is like, I need access to my health information because I would like to know that the MRI I got done of my brain was normal. That was really good news. I was like, great, I'm happy I can access that on the portal. Excellent. Um, but like, there's so much more you can do with that data that's highly beneficial to the individual that I just feel like we're so caught up in, oh, well, patients don't want this. And so like, let's just not worry about doing it, that we're, we're just not thinking about that bigger picture of all of the services you can do with the data. And I feel like when you step outside of healthcare, like as, as much as I hate how much Amazon knows about me, <laughs> there are benefits to how much Amazon knows about me because I buy like everything on Prime. Like every other industry has sort of figured out how to take that data and build services off of it, good and bad, right? And there are some very negative things around privacy that folks who know me know I'm not supportive of. But there's just so much potential that if folks are willing to like step away from sort of the age old paternalistic complaints of like, well, but patients don't want to look at their data. Cool, they don't. But like if you could help recommend a plan for me that would be financially better in my options, I'm like, that would be awesome. Like that would be super, super helpful for me and for my parents who call me every year to ask them to ask for my help with their choices. Like that would be great. Um, so, so I, just how I think about it. But. Th this, this topic raises a question that I've been chewing on a little bit and, and it's sort of ties to one of the the topics that we had sort of decided we, we had listed out in the in the agenda um you know has hipaa in some fashions outlived its moment um the way that patient access rules have been structured um you know as soon as patients click the button or or you know whatever the case may be um their data is handed over to a third party that is not a covered entity, is not a business associate of a covered entity, it yeah. is not in the sort of the big HIPAA um, envelope that we've all been living in. Um, and so, you know, Amazon in, and big tech are maybe instructive examples. I'm not sure people realize how big of a deal that is. 
Um, yeah. and, in, and in my mind, it, it raises sort of interesting ethical questions, right? Like, like where do the new boundaries get drawn about what's an appropriate thing to do with patient-directed health yeah. information and what's not? And will there be some reckoning, you know, might not be this year or next year, but in five years where we all sort of wake up and say, oh my gosh, like what, what have we done? Um, where it's going to be we... next year. <laughs> like, like how are we're you... going to see congressional. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. I mean, how are it's... you thinking about that? Yeah, I'll be honest. I've been frustrated over, you know, since leaving ONC um, that within our industry, there seems to be this feeling that you, you, you're either in one camp or the other. You either want privacy for patient data or you just don't want patients to have access. And like, how dare you try to make it harder? And they're not the same thing. Like I am a, I am an incredibly large supporter of patient access to their data. Cause like I use mine all the time <laughs> um, and I use my families all the time. Um, but I am deeply, deeply concerned about data privacy and the fact that to your point, HIPAA has out, like HIPAA has not, nor could it keep up with the technological advancements that we've made since 1996, <laughs> which has been a really long time. I was possibly still in high school then. So, <laughs> so it's been a really long time. Like, you know, like AOL and chat rooms, right? Like that's what was going on in 96. So at least, at least for me. Um, so, so like it can't, it hasn't kept up both from a privacy perspective as well as from a um, pricing perspective, right? So the other issue with HIPAA, in my opinion, is you can charge for labor costs of like people doing things, but there's no uh, construct within HIPAA to pay for all of the infrastructure necessary to enable patient access to data electronically, which isn't free. Like you have to run servers and build APIs and maintain APIs and like all of that costs money. And there's no HIPAA structure for that, right? So we, I'm guessing that we're going to see increases in premiums because someone has to recoup that money somewhere, right? So we have like major issues around all of that. Um, the problem we have right now is Congress is just completely unwilling to do what it needs to do to create an actual privacy framework that encapsulates more than just the data that's created when you go to your traditional healthcare provider, right? So again, I'll give easy examples here. Um, the medical, so I'm dealing with migraine issues. I'm, I'm fairly open about most of my health conditions. So the neurologist I was seeing in Maryland, traditional specialist in a healthcare organization, all of my data for her in HIPAA. Because I can't see her anymore, and it's going to be way too hard to find a neurologist where I just moved to and literally know one person. <laughs> um, I'm using the online service NERCS, which is like telehealth based, and you give them all your info. Um, like, not necessarily HIPAA covered, really. I'm actually not sure that any of that is covered by HIPAA because they're not like a traditional provider, they're like a third party providing it. So now I have this like weird dichotomy of like where all my data lives, right? And most patients just don't even understand this. And so like, I think we're gonna have a reckoning within the next two years, both around the uses of that data. And I think we've seen some of that. The FTC just like a couple months ago slammed or um, fined one of the, I think it was like a fertility tracking app, if I remember correctly, because they, in their consent policies, were not upfront about how they were using the data. So FTC, I think, is going to start cracking down, and we'll see that. And there are definitely Congress, like from the Senate Health Committee in particular, who are very invested in this. Like Senator Alexander, in particular, understands this issue, is very invested in it, and wants to do some things. But it's, I mean, it's going to blow he up. He is retiring, though, right? So. He is, which actually gives him, like, some leeway to do some things that you otherwise, like, might not be able to do in a bipartisan fashion, which is good. Sure. But we also have a Congress that like may or may not be an older population who possibly doesn't understand all of this data stuff and like what it means. Um, so it's, you know, my concern, my biggest concern, uh, you know, is that once all that data is out in the wild, so there's, I mentioned all the really good things you could do with it, but you could also subversively advertise and market to me about your particular pharmaceutical that I may or may not actually need, right? And like the New York Times has done some data privacy. Uh, they have an awesome data privacy page if you wanna check it out where they've done reviews of like subversive marketing. And 
using behavioral economics and data. And, and it is like just amazing how much um, hits us that we just don't even realize. So think about all your health data being out in the market for that kind of subversive marketing. And if we think that the GDP for healthcare in our country isn't going to like just go up over the next few years, right? Like, I think we're kind of kidding ourselves. So, so we've set ourselves up, I think, for a lot of issues around that, number one. And then number two, the other concern that I have is, you know, we've still failed to deal with federated identity management and patient matching. So how do we make sure that it's actually me accessing the data? And how do we then make sure that it's actually my data that you've given to me? Yeah. And, and we have set up a system where we've now required providers to release that data, which I totally understand and agree with, but we've sort of set them up for failure because we set them up to do that without having the corresponding infrastructure in place to ensure that you're actually getting it to the right patient or to an appropriate proxy for that patient. And I, I mean, I, you know, I've worked with FQHCs who have to deal with, you know, abusive partner situations a lot, um, substance use, all that kind of stuff. And if you just think about like the danger of like an abusive partner situation where they gain access to your health information because they can't, like they know enough about you to trick it without real identity proofing like bad stuff is going to happen. And I think yeah. we're just not really prepared for what that means. And that, I mean, it's just deeply concerning to me on a lot of levels. Yeah. Well, so um, put, put your, your change healthcare hat on for a minute. Um, change is, is a company and it's sort of various chapters of its history has um, traditionally sat kind of behind the curtain um, and has not had a direct relationship with the consumer or the patient, the average person, um, but, but is sort of like close to the nerve center of, of where, you know, healthcare business gets transacted and data gets transacted. I mean, what, what is the, how is the company thinking about these things? I mean, it, um, are, I'm sure you're being asked by your customers, your trading partners, however you want to think about them, um, to, to be a part of, of solutions that take advantage of, of the new world that we live yeah, in. And, um, for sure. Yeah. Where, I mean, where do you guys want to be in all of that? Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's tricky because you do have to walk it carefully because as you think like, you know, we do interoperability already for administrative data and we've been building out clinical for a while now. Um, and my battery is going to die. Shoot. Hold on one second. <laughs> because I don't want my battery to die in the middle of the conversation. Um, the, um, you know, we've been in the process of building that out for a while. Um, so, we so we've done a lot of work on that. Um, but to your point, we're not like front facing, right? Like my parents, when I said I was joining Change Healthcare, were like, all right, cool. Who's Change Healthcare, <laughs> right? Because um, they, they don't know our world, right? But we do process the majority of, um, every administrative transaction and we're gradually, you know, gaining a larger and larger clinical network. And so we do, um, you know, there's a ton of potential within that, right? So we do have um, our first patient facing app, sorry. Um, whoops, sorry to do this in the middle of a podcast, just life. Um, our first um, patient centered app that we've spun up um, is Shopbook Pay, right? And that one um, is provided like on behalf of provider organizations to patients to help them look for care, find care, how much will it cost them, that kind of thing. Um, within my group, we're um, working on how do we enable the clinical access to data, right? How do we, how do we use the network um, and interoperability platform, really the platform that we've built that's connected to various networks to enable like a really seamless consumer experience where I don't have to remember all of my provider names and passwords and user credentials, but can use matching to find that data to a high degree and return it back to them. And the really cool thing is like, if you combine those things together, um, I think as Change Healthcare, we sit at a really cool spot where some of those things I was talking about, what you can do with data um, could be a possibility because you know, we know under the shop book pay, like all your claims and administrative information, right? And so it's about getting the appropriate data rights in place to use that data. Um, but as we access the clinical data on behalf of the patients, you know, 
Our goal is to ethically use that data and make sure we're providing it for the purpose that the patient is accessing it. But there's, I think, a ton of potential for us to combine together sort of those different application layers that we have, while also like having them be provided on behalf of the people that the customer, like the individuals know, right? So I don't think you like, you're not really going to see like a change healthcare patient app. Right. I mean, you maybe in a few years, that would not be my plan. <laughs> and I do the strategy at the moment. So I feel like I can say that. Um, you never know stuff changes, um, but that wouldn't be the goal. Our goal would be to serve, to be able to find the data and use our technology to serve it up to, um, to brands that like the customer or the individual chooses to use because they know them and they're comfortable with them having their data. Um, and it makes sense for whatever use case they're serving. Um, so we're, we're pretty excited about that work. A lot of it has been spinning up just over the last few months. Um, and, and a lot of it is possible really because of the ONC regulations and the OCR guidance that's been provided. Um, and I think really at the end of the day, like we want to provide a really good consumer experience that hopefully at some juncture <laughs> pulls together all the different pieces of data and isn't just simply like, well, let me look at my data in an app. Right. Great. I, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. And I do that too, but it would be really helpful if we can get to a point where we're, we're doing stuff with that data that's providing a service. And I think at that point, like that's when we'll know more that like we've made it. <laughs> and you, I mean, you can't do that until the data is flowing. Right. So like first things first, it has to be electronic, then it has to flow. Then you can get into those kinds of data services. But, you know, I just, I, Maybe there's a company out there who's really forward thinking with that. And I just gave you ideas. So feel free to take them, I guess, and, and give me credit somewhere. <laughs> but, so, yeah, yeah. There are a bunch of questions from, from the, um, the attendees. One of them sort of speaks to this. Um, this person's describing what, what Mernal and I have kind of referred to as the, the mint model, right? So for folks who, who know what, what mint is, yeah. it's a, I think they're now on by into it and it's a it's a website you can go to and you can um, link all of your financial accounts and create a create sort of a <clears throat> longitudinal view. Um, and the question is, do you think this would be a feasible option to a type of patient centric app center for all patient portals to securely um, integrate? And I guess what I would say is like, I, I think that's actually sort of <clears throat> phase one of yeah. what the interoperability rule contemplates. Yes. Um, and and yeah. I kind of remember, I, I don't use Mint anymore, but I, I started using it, I think Mernal, maybe at your suggestion, way, way back in the day, maybe all the way yeah. back to the early I still days. have an account that I'd like never log in um, to, ever. And in those, in those early days, there were um, not that many financial institutions yeah. where you could sort of search for them within Mint and it would pop up and it was click, 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 enter your, your username and password and everything is fetched. It broke a bunch. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and now if you use it, you know, 10, eight, 10 years later, um, you know, pretty much every fin financial organization under the sun is in their, in their menu. You know, even the yeah. sort of really small niche 401k provider that we use for Leap Orbit. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of the way, I think that's what you're going to see with payers, patient access APIs, like that behind the scenes work is going to take some time to get stitched together. Yep. Um, well, and, it's, yeah. it's an easy way to allow patients to access data while punting the problem of matching and federated identity down the road, like, that, yes. I mean, like legitimately. Sure. Yes. That is what we're doing. That, that's it. Yeah. Picking the can. And I get it. We have to do one thing at a time. It's just like the, <laughs> the frustration I have in health IT sometimes is that underpinning infrastructure that's just like necessary for everything to work, but isn't cool. It isn't sexy. And like, it's not shiny and flashy. Like it's the stuff that gets ignored. And I have no greater frustration in life than when someone asks me about patient matching. And my response is, well, have you read my 2013 report that I wrote for ONC? Because it's pretty much still like where we are. Like maybe we're a little, like we've got standardized data now, which was one of the recommendations in the report. I, I co-authored. <laughs> yes, you did. Yes. And so did David. Like, but like that's still where we are. Like we, 
we're, we're just stuck. Right. And so I do understand like it's a good short-term option for getting patients access. It cannot be our solution. Like it just, it is not like no offense to Mitt. Like it's not a good, because like, think about it. Individuals have one, maybe two different banks they work with, right? If you're talking about a really sick patient or you're talking about a caregiver of parents, think about how many different provider organizations you would have to remember the names of and the credentials for. I mean, and, and you really, even as a caregiver, technically wouldn't even be able to access other than using your parents' credentials, right? Which we sh none of us should be okay with for security reasons. Um, so, so there's just limitations to it. And I think it's perfectly fine as a place to start. Um, change healthcare, there's a reason why that's not where we're starting. One of which is we have the technology. But that, that's, what, that's what Apple is doing, for example, right? Exactly, yeah. It's, it's what all the major vendors are doing. And I totally get, I completely understand why that's where they're, they're starting. I think we're offering more of a network type approach. Again, if you've looked at Tefka, it shouldn't surprise anyone that this is my strategy, <laughs> like, because this is what we, I envision. But, you know, a change, we're, we're doing more of a network type approach of, like, you get identity proof to a high level, level two, which yeah. isn't that, it's not that hard of a process, right? So you get identity proof, we have the token, we use our matching capabilities, which are fairly sophisticated, to match you to 100%, which means we won't find everyone, um, and the data gets returned back in, right? And so it's it's a much smoother process, but I agree with you, David, like it will be stepping stones for sure. So long as like we understand that it's a stepping stone. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is the argument I had when we did the care quality implementation guide for fire is, all right, we'll, we'll start with smart on fire and portal credentials as long as we all understand like that's the start and it shouldn't be where we stop. So we, we have been, um, you know, as you know, we, we have a provider directory solution and we're working with payers and, and Medicaid agencies to stand up provider directory APIs. Um, and part of our message has been, hey, the interoperability rule is, is phase one. Like if you just look at the, the DaVinci PDEX IG yeah. for provider directory, it's this like big spider web of, of things that that have that are interrelated and they're you know practitioner and practitioner role down in the corner we're we're starting there but we're referencing an implementation guide that does more yeah. than that um so so when you make your investments make them wisely because if you if you slap on a band-aid that just does those two little things in the corner you know next year the bar is going to be in a different place yeah yeah, you sure. like how do you think about the the rulemaking authority that exists under the Cures Act to, to keep iterating and raising the bar? Like it's it's obviously not infinite, but but there's room there to do a lot of other things. Yes. Yeah, so, so ONC has rulemaking authority under the Cures Act to um, to make modifications in info blocking, right? So let's say and I'm just to be very clear, I'm not saying ONC will do this. I have no inside information because they, they're good at this. Yeah, um, sure. But they they are well within their authority. If, you know, we're, we're at final rule now, we, for the next, you know, two years, they do investigations and they find out things, right? And, or they find people using new tactics to skirt the system, right? So within their authority under cures, they can go in and do an updated version of info blocking that, you know, adds another exception or modifies an exception, right? So they are well within their authority to do iterations, not saying they're going to, but they can. Yep. Same thing with um, certification, right? They they will continue to do iterations of certification. That's, that's just an ongoing requirement. The CMS interoperability rule is interesting because if you set aside... Um, Set aside the like uh, the normal the stuff that was in that rule that was like the um, like the normal annual stuff they do the patient APIs and the COP like none of that was legislatively mandated like they weren't given legislative authority to do that that that's just something they did because they think it's the right thing to do yeah. right so there was no like overarching like. Um, there was no overarching, like, uh, I can't think of the word that I want, but like- uh, like a legislative, legislative mandate. Yeah, there wasn't a legislative yeah. mandate other than like, 
promote interoperability, right? Like right. that's an overarching legislative mandate they have. Yeah. And so this is how they did that. Yeah. So they, you know, under the new administration, like who knows whether they'll continue to pursue it. I think, you know, SEMA was um, very involved in interoperability when she served, I think, and she mentioned this when she served because of her husband's experience. I think it, it was very personal for her as it is for most of us in this space. Um, and so she was very engaged and wanted to make sure that things kept moving forward. I, I think just don't know yet with this administration, you know, whether they're going to continue the CMS front of things or not, um, or whether it'll mostly be an ONC show. I think, you know, they, the penalty structure for info blocking, so set aside the payer side, which I, you know, I'm a big proponent of the EPA stuff. So I think it would be great if CMS continues to actually modify the requirements for that and implement EPA. That would be awesome. Um, on the info blocking front, you know, there is the penalties already associated with promoting interoperability, right? So if you information block, you either attest yes or no that I didn't did or didn't info block when you uh, test to promoting interoperability and you fail or you pass, and then you may or may not get penalized later, right? So you might fail promoting interoperability, but there's a whole group of healthcare providers that that doesn't apply to, right? Like labs, like Quest and LabCorp are healthcare providers under the definitions for info blocking, but there's no penalty structure for them in place right now. So if they info block, we don't know what happens to them other than they're shamed. <laughs> possibly by CMS. Um, so there's, I, there's definitely, I think, rulemaking CMS needs to do on that part to ensure that like there's equitable penalty structure, because I think we all know like those non-traditional healthcare providers, I'm just going to say non-traditional because there's no good word, like, you know, they're info blockers just like everyone else is. Like, you know, so you go to like an online provider who doesn't bill, um, who doesn't, bill your health insurance plan electronically, which means they're not a covered entity under HIPAA, which means there's like no structure for them to be penalized. So your data just doesn't get shared. You know, it just like, it just does, doesn't work that way. So I think CMS needs to figure that piece out. But on the, on the payer API side, I'm just not sure, you know, the rule got pulled back. I will say this, I, I thought the rule was too hastily done. It wasn't a bad rule. And I think directionally it was the right way to go. I just, I think there were some pieces of it that could have been better and it was just too quickly done. So I think I was perfectly fine with that being pulled back to get a little bit more feedback from the industry. But I don't think we really know if there's gonna be another iteration and they're certainly not required to do it, so. Well, it's also clear that in, in this environment with COVID preoccupying the industry, it, it, there's not gonna be a lot of appetite to, to whack organizations for yeah. um, non-COVID related things in the middle of a public health emergency. I mean, and that's kind of fair. I mean, it's, and I will say this for the healthcare systems, like, because I, I work with a lot of them, they've not had time to think about info blocking yeah. since COVID started. I mean, the, the yeah. rule came out right when we were going into lockdown, right? Yeah. So, so they've, I mean, they just haven't had time to think about it. And so I think it's, we're just in this weird sort of coming out of it phase and who knows quite what's going to happen. I think, I think we can all agree um, that we have neglected our public health infrastructure um, a lot and, and we need to step that up and fix it. And again, funny story, things like patient matching, pivotal to our public health infrastructure, like, you know, and, and you, we talked about the immunization passport stuff. Yeah. That's great. So how are you going to get individuals access to the data in the immunization registry if you can't identity proof them and match them to their data? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's like we have these great ideas and I think they're fantastic, but you have to take a step back and make sure you've got the tech in place necessary to do that instead of just kicking the can down the road. So what, one last quick anecdote on that, and then we, we've got a ton of questions, so maybe maybe we'll run through them in, in rapid okay. fire fashion, right. but we're, we're working with, with a state right now on their, on their vaccine tracking, you know, sort of pr production to, to, um, to jab life cycle tracking, and we're, we're seeing a, a non-trivial number of patients in the data who seem to have had more than two jabs. Um, right, which which, which is doesn't seem accurate. <laughs> which is well, it's interesting. Like, like, what do you make of that? Is is are, are there things actually happening in the field, um, or, or are we looking at patient matching issues? 
Um, my guess would be patient matching issues. Yeah. And I, I would yeah. say my experience on the immunization side from back in the day is it's a, they're using a lot of deterministic matching. Well, one deterministic matching two, you know, the, because of what the registries have been used for, it wasn't as important to like spell my name correctly versus making sure you have like key demographics about me, like age, gender, race, ethnicity, right? So the demographic data itself is just that we use for matching is, is poor. And then yep. you put on top of that, that you're doing a deterministic match on poor data quality. Yep. It's just, that's what it's going to lead to. And so it's not super surprising to me. And I mean, this is a scenario where like the vaccine's free. So I'm pretty confident. It's like, not like I'm trying to do medical fraud and get services for free. And therefore like there's two of me. So, I mean, it, you definitely know it's not that in this scenario. So, I, I mean, I'd have to guess that it's a matching issue and or the folks who are, who are giving the vaccines, it's just they don't have time to record everything right. correctly because they're just trying to like get people through the line. I don't know. All right, let's, um, this will be a first for the Leap Orbit Interoperability Roundtable. Let, let's let's do a rapid fire and see if we can tick through a it's bunch hard. of these. Yeah, <laughs> not um, fast at anything like this. <laughs> Here's a question about um, the fees that EHR vendors charge their customers and also for third-party vendors to use their APIs. Um, th there's a, there's a, a, a concept in the rules around the reasonableness of those fees. Um, like what, this person's asking, what does that mean? Like what, what's the, what are the boundaries of reasonableness? Um, that's my, so the word is not defined. Um, the word is not defined. <laughs> so we, we don't know. Um, it's, it's cost. So what they're allowed, well, let me clarify this. When it's the certified API, they're only allowed to charge their customer. They're not allowed to charge the third party app anything, right? Doesn't mean the customer can't charge them, but they can't. When they charge the customer, it's cost plus reasonable profit. I don't I know what this is an area is. where the sort of case law is going to matter, right? Like I think so. And, and I think there'll be lawsuits, right? So the first person they investigate where they say it wasn't reasonable what you charged, that company will sue. Right. And then the court will make a decision, much like they did with RAND licensing terms about what was reasonable. Right. And then we'll know. <laughs> okay. The next question is around the, the next phase of the information blocking rule in October of 2022. Um, unstructured data becomes subject to the rule. Um, it, it, is this really where healthcare organizations will start to be able to build value add services on top of, of the data? Um, I don't know why you would have to wait for unstructured data to do that. Um, I think, you know, if you've not looked at the US CDI, it's not everything to be super clear. It's missing social determinants of health data, which people are suggesting the inferred version too, but it's like, I mean, it's a pretty significant data set. It's, it's a lot of stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that you would need to wait for unstructured data to do a bunch of services. I think the trickier part would be the best value add services will be available when folks can figure out how to put together the administrative and the clinical data and have the data rights to do that. Okay. I would take structured data over unstructured data. <laughs> right? Because you can do a lot with structured data that you can't with unstructured. And the NLP stuff is... Yeah, I mean, the only thing I... The only, if I was going to take the other side of that argument, I would say um, the, the EHR vendors and the, the guardians of, of this data are, may or may not be the best ones to um, figure out what to do with the unstructured stuff and add value on top of it. Agree. Um, and yeah. there's also clearly a ton of R&D potential um, sitting in, in that unstructured data because we know there's clinical value and decision-making value yeah. there. And, and, and the technology has evolved to do NLP and all sure. sorts of- Yeah, but it still needs to be way better than it is right now. Yeah. Yeah, and it's mixed bag. Yeah. Um, okay, let's see here. Um, these are long questions. <laughs> there, there's a, a comment or a proposal about uh, creating a decentralized distributed blockchain healthcare internet where everything is networked and integrated together. You, you can you can go uh, gloss over that, David. That's like 
it's posted every time. It's like a bot. I, I mean, this would be my answer. Technology, while we have some infrastructure issues we need to solve, technology is not our problem. It is policy and business related. Um, we have technology to do lots of things, but if we don't have the data rights, it doesn't really matter. Um, so blockchain sounds great until you realize that you have to put policy wrappers around everything and then blockchain just like falls apart for us. I think I'm also just at this point resigned to a healthcare industry of at best strategic incrementalism um, and sort of trying to improve the world as it is versus um, reimagine it just given all of the constraints yeah. that we live with in, in this industry. Yeah. And and I think we need outside ideas, but again, you have to temper that with the reality of the world that we live in, which isn't what any of us want it to be, but it is what it is, so, yeah. Hey, we, could, we couldn't move to a metric system, did we? So <laughs> the rest of the world- We could is. also cancel daylight savings time, but we haven't done that either yet, except for Arizona, <laughs> exactly. so, you know. <laughs> um, there's an interesting question or, or maybe comment around, um, you know, patients' rights, uh, if hospitals or, clinic or clinics are disclaiming all the various ways that they're um, using health data, the, the patient doesn't really get sort of a, a line item veto. Um, yeah, and I have issues with this. Like, um, so one, access to health care. And I think we would all agree on this should never be predicated on you giving away the rights to your data other than like the normal stuff under HIPAA we all deal with all the time, right? Like if you want your, if you want your healthcare paid for, you have to agree for it to be released for payment, right? Like that, that's just the reality, right? If you don't do that, it can't be released, but your access to healthcare shouldn't be predicated on you being okay with them doing all kinds of other stuff, right? Um, generally speaking, my personal opinion is, um, if you don't pay with your dollars, you pay with your data. That's how it is in the world. And I, I think people should be given that option. And so even when it comes to your clinical data and this world that sits outside of HIPAA and the apps that you choose to work with, like you should have a lot of transparency about what happens with your data um, and be able to make meaningful choices, right? And this is how we termed it in TEFCA is a meaningful choice, which means I don't have to read a 20 page terms and agreement um, to understand what you're going to do with my data or that you're going to share it with your partners. Um, and so we're, we're working through this right now ourselves because we, um, we will be, uh, in order to access data for individual access, agreeing to the Karen Code of Conduct. And so we're actually working through our transparency policies on this right now to make sure patients understand what we do or don't do with their data and giving them optionality on opt-ins and opt-outs of things. Um, coupled with that, we are also um, currently setting up an ethical data use group within Change Healthcare that's going to be looking at, you know, so it's it's legal, but is it morally right to do? Um, is it ethically right to do? Um, and really reviewing all of our privacy policies in light of that so that consumers sort of have a little bit more choice and have a little bit more say so. Yeah, I think um, Deborah, one of the attendees kind of sums this up well. Um, she's, she's saying that, um, Modern technology and advancements in data sharing are, are amazing, but to use them to the fullest, you have to forfeit, you know, basic privacy where PHI and PII are yeah. concerned. Um, so, you, you know, you're taking the risk of, of a breach or, or data theft or yeah. whatever. And yeah, Deborah, you're right. It's, it's an unfortunate trade-off. I, I think you, you kind of get right to the, the core of, of the moment that we're in right now where you know, as a, a, as a society, but definitely as an industry, we're trying to figure out how to balance those trade-offs in a way that, you know, benefits people in, in the best possible way. And it's, th well, these are not, some of us are. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think um, th these are not always black and white decisions. Right? No, like they're, they're really not. And it's, you know, like, like all policy issues, there is very rarely like an easy answer. I think, we should all be contacting our congressmen and women and telling them that we need new privacy legislation. Because at the end of the day, like that's the inhibiting factor. And whether that's at your state level or your federal level or both, like that's what we should be doing because we shouldn't have to make that trade-off. And we are years behind the European Union on this. Like, and, and like you should be able to make a decision 
I personally would choose to pay with dollars rather than giving people access to my data. Like that's the choice that I would make. It's not the choice everyone would make. Some people want to monetize their data and they should be able to do that. Um, But right now we just, we have like zero choice in the U.S. And it's not really the company's fault because they're following the laws. So it's kind of our, like our leadership's fault. (laughs) Jake, I'm going to hand it back off to you. I know we're just about at the top of the hour here. Time, time flew. Oh yeah, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Genevieve, for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thanks today. for having me. That was a really good conversation. We've got it recorded, so in the next uh, few hours or so, I'll get get it up on Spotify, so folks who weren't here can listen, or folks who were here can share it with their friends. Um, and I did just want to note that earlier we spoke about convergent our provider data API. For folks who are interested, we are launching a private beta for that on 5-14, May the 14th, two weeks from today. So between now and the next two weeks, you might see some more information about that coming out. But if you'd like to join, I'm going to drop a link to that in the chat um, if you'd like to sign up for that in the meantime. Um, And that would basically just be giving you access to our provider directory and its APIs. So uh, it's really cool. We're really excited to be sharing that. And um, uh, you'll be hearing more from us about that in the next few weeks. Um, Also, um, for folks who might want to join us um, as a guest for the Interoperability Roundtable, I'm also going to share a separate link for that as well. So we're always looking for great guests. If you yourself want to join as a, as a, uh, a guest or if you know somebody who would be great to recommend, you can do that as well. Um, So thanks everybody for joining us today. And um, we will talk to you on the next one. So I-14 is also going to be our next um, interoperability round table with Karsten Russell Wood from Phillips Healthcare. So thanks everybody. Thanks Genevieve. Bye. Thanks Genevieve.